Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. Oh, I can hardly believe it. This is episode number 450 of Suncast, and I can scarcely think of a better and more fitting guest to help us celebrate. Thank you so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got, that's your time. Well, it's March, and you know what that means, Women's History Month. Back in 2019, I committed to my friend Tara Doyle and to you as my faithful listeners to improve the gender equity on Suncast. And as part of that commitment, the month of March has become a showcase of the outstanding female leadership guiding our industry forward. Back in 1980, President Jimmy Carter declared the week of March 2nd to 8th as National Women's History Week, which of course now has expanded to Women's History Month. In honor of that, I'd like to invite you to reflect on a part of President Carter's speech that day and contemplate how true it still rings out for our solar and broader clean energy sector. President Carter says, from the first settlers who came to our shores, from the first American Indian families who befriended them, men and women have worked together to build this nation. Too often, the women were unsung, and sometimes their contributions were unnoticed. But the achievements, leadership, courage, strength, and love of the women who built America was as vital as that of the men whose names we know so well. Among the names of the women who shall live in the history books as having championed the cause and inevitability of the clean energy transition, few shall have so easily recognizable a track record of achievement as today's guest, Mary Powell. Mary is recognized as the Chief Executive Officer of Sunrun, the nation's leading home solar, battery storage, and energy services company. But many, like myself, will fondly recall that from 2008 to 2019, Mary served as president and CEO of Green Mountain Power Corporation, an electric services company that serves 75% of the state of Vermont's residents and business customers. At GMP, Mary delivered on an ambitious energy vision to provide low-carbon, low-cost, and highly reliable power to Vermonters. And she positioned that company as a leading energy transformation business. Her experience as an executive at both a utility and now a distributed energy company give her keen insight into the requirements of and obstacles to the energy transition we are all striving for. I am truly grateful for the kind folks at Sunrun and Tenna Group who helped make this interview possible. And I look forward to hearing from you on what we missed this time around that should be included in a follow-up interview with Mary. This is one of the interviews 
I've most sought to bring you, Solar Warrior, and I know you're going to love it. If you do, in fact, like these kinds of conversations, then please be sure to subscribe to the show, as that will ensure you won't miss out on our twice-weekly content just like this. And you can check out 449 additional founder stories and startup advice at mysuncast.com. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Solar Warriors. Well, I've been looking forward to today, to put it mildly, for a very long time and for many, many months coordinating and waiting and uh, having the opportunity to see today's guest, Mary Powell, take her newest role in the energy transition. Today, you're in for a real, real treat. As I've said in the introduction, and uh, she almost needs no introduction, Mary Powell is the CEO of Sunrun, which is, of course, the nation's leading home solar battery storage and energy services company. Uh, been around for a long time, more than two decades, and I've talked at, lo- at length about the impact of, uh, of Sunrun and uh, the many opportunities that are now being realized through interviews with many folks, including Ann Hoskins. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those previous interviews with the Sunrun folks. They really are pushing the boundaries today. We're going to talk a bit about how the now CEO has been pushing boundaries since long before her tenure at Sunrun. But first, let me say a huge suncast. Welcome to Mary Powell. Oh, thank you so much, Nico. It's so wonderful to be on this show and to be talking to you today. I've been looking forward to it as well. Well, I am uh, truly overjoyed, and I can I can tell you that most of my my listeners will uh, will recognize a certain amount of what might even sound like odd to them as nerves. So I'll ask to be forgiven if I sound a little nervous. I've said to my friends that there are very few people I get nervous around, like Guy Raz, the podcaster, uh, you know, and Mary Powell. So here we are. <laughs> I'm eternally grateful for the opportunity, but I really want to get down to brass tacks. Um, And a lot of the way that we think about the conversation here on Suncast, as I've explained to you in the past, is really looking at how you got where you are. For me, it comes down to the fundamentals, kind of how you were raised. I come from the South and uh, family is is everything. Community is kind of second to everything. I know they're really uh, important for you. And you come from a very art-inspired family background. What was the conversation like around that family table as a child? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So I have called myself the accidental executive (laughs) most times I speak because not only did I never see myself in the world of business, but I actually deliberately didn't want to be in the world Mm. of business. You know, actually, I mean, growing up, The best way to describe it is, yes, my dad was an actor and an artist, and we were raised to uh, basically, yeah, have have hold up very in very high regard anything in the arts. And in fact, um, you know, the business folks in our building that lived in our New York City you know, tenement building, the business folks tend to live on the higher floors, which in Mm -hmm. New York City ties some status to it because it means you usually have a view. And we would see them when they would come home, particularly this one lawyer that would come home from work, you know, and in his three-piece suit. And every time we got off the elevator, my dad and I, if we were on the elevator with Mr. Hart, would say, don't you feel bad for him? Like, (laughs) what a life, having to get all dressed up and be in an office all day. So, yes, I I absolutely um, did not grow up with any orientation 
towards business, towards, I mean, nor towards the world of energy, nor towards basically anything I've done, I would say, in my adult life. As such, given that you were exposed at a young age to a wide variety of influences, who would you say that you most aspired to emulate as a child? Perhaps might call it your childhood hero. Um, you know, I would say probably the closest to a childhood hero that I had was my older brother. We're still incredibly close. And I feel like he exemplified unconditional love and just that constant, steady outpouring of support and confidence. So I feel like, yes, he was very, he's four years older than I am and we're still incredibly close. And yeah, so that would be the person I would think of. We had a, we had a very loving home, but like a lot of folks, we also had a, you know, a lot of dysfunction growing up. So it it would be my brother. That's so beautiful. I love the, the very notion of having a model of unconditional love is something that so many of us take for granted, right? And yet it is not universal. It's not something that folks have been shown in the home and that, and that carries through to the work world. And as we nurture the cultural reality of, a, of an enterprise, which is a family in and of itself, I want to pull on that thread of unconditional love and how it permute, uh, the permutations of that into organizational culture. How have you explored that sort of that, that imbuing of, of love as a concept or as a, as a foundational principle for business? Well, I think a foundational like principle for my life and my orientation, actually, it ties very directly to that point, but it also mm-hmm. ties to another point that I think really came out of my childhood. So again, no orientation towards business, as we know, all orientation mm-hmm. towards the arts, you know, and a heavy dose of dysfunction. And so really, you know, my orientation from a young age was just not just enamored with the power of love, but enamored with the idea um, (laughs) that it was my job to use every ounce of love I could find to try to correct what I felt needed correcting in the family situation. So I Mm -hmm. took on very much, I was the youngest of three and I very much took on the role, at least in my own mind of being the fixer. So being the fixer and, you know, again, trying to, trying to really tap into one of the things, you know, I just, I, I, you know, maybe it was also being a kid of the sixties and the seventies. It's just like peace and love, like love was everything. Like love felt like this all powerful force that I wanted to use to make things better. This is a little tangential. I haven't brought it up in any of my other interviews, but I do talk about it a lot with my coaching clients. Do you know off the top of your head, your uh, Myers-Briggs or maybe your Enneagram type? I know both as a matter of fact. Okay. (laughs) My Myers-Briggs is E-N-T-P. Okay. And my Enneagram was I, it was, it was a funny, he said it was sort of a split between a three and a seven, but I came, we agreed. I came out more on the three. Okay. The three, my computer is going to run super slowly and I'm not like an Enneagram superstar here, but I was going to look up the three. Do you remember what the three sort of type name is? Uh, uh, I don't remember the name of the type. Yeah. I'm going to pull it up right now. I think it's kind of like a classic. Yeah, it is. It's the. It's the achiever. Yeah. Yes. The achiever. There we go. The achiever. Yeah. There is one, uh, I believe called the fixer. And, um, you know, one of the things that I work with my clients on is particularly leveraging 
the knowledge of people's different personality styles and understanding that each one of us have different communication styles there therein uh, to lead an organization better. We won't go too far on this tangent, but Dave Ramsey of um, Financial Peace, uh, you know, the famous radio uh, broadcaster has uh, for years used the DISC assessment, which is kind of a third. Yes, I've, I've also taken the DISC assessment. Oh, yeah. I think I've taken every tool there is at some I'm point. Sure. <laughs> I'm sure. My, my DISC is connector, which should surprise none of my listeners or friends. Um, I think it is pretty common that the, uh, is, did you say third child? You did say the youngest child. Yes. Third and youngest. Yeah. I've heard that, and I've got a third child as well. Uh, I've heard that it's the third child and, and or the youngest child that, tends to be the one who feels like it's their job to hold the family together, especially mm-hmm. in uh, particularly dysfunctional areas. And I also come from an artistic family, so we'll leave it at that. And we don't need to get too far down into your family <laughs> history. I, I am curious though, as a fellow musician or artist, you went to the high school of performing arts that was famously uh, the real life model for the TV show fame. I'm curious, what was your focus or artistic specialty at that school? I was like an artist, so practical art, so drawing, painting. I love drawing. Drawing was really my the thing that I loved the most. But, but truth be known, I never saw myself as talented enough to like make it in the world of the arts. Yeah. You know, very much, you know, the situation was that I really needed to test to get into a better school because the local public school had pretty rough reputation back then. And so I was, my parents were fearful. I was a little fearful about going to the local public school. So it was a way to test into a, into a different environment. I think even within that light, it tells me a bit more about the kind of work that you have done, the ability, I won't say chameleon style, but to straddle the the two realities because at those schools, Juilliard among them, the, there are folks who are there because they need or want to be there for family reasons and there are, or safety reasons. And there are those who are there because they can't see another life like this is exactly what they were destined to be. In that regard, I'd love to know what career path did you not go down, but always thought that you would? So I was, you know, not just the accidental executive, I was clueless about where to go. So the one thing I was sure of is that I needed to support myself from a very young age. So I did do that. Um, I was very industrious um, and worked from, you know, as as early as I could, dog walking, babysitting. And then I got my first real job at Baskin Robbins. But, you know, the grand question for me always was, where do I fit? In my mind, there was never an obvious, I would say the only obvious thing, like the only career that seemed like, oh my gosh, I would Mm. love if I could be fill in the blank. It was a veterinarian, which, (laughs) because I I absolutely love animals. I always have. I collected, you know, so many strays growing up in New York City and, you know, to this day have a lot of animals around me. So I did dream of that, but that's all it was. It was a dream. It wasn't anything I ever took action on or it was something that felt very out of reach for me to tell you the truth. I, I always felt like I, I love the idea of it, but I could never see myself getting from where I was to that outcome. You know, it's, it's interesting. It tells me a lot more about you as well. Cause I remember at the very end of the bio that I was sent, uh, it says with family and there are five dogs and a couple of dozen barn animals. And I thought, <laughs> well, 
that's really interesting. I, I, I have done more than 450 of these and in no bio does it talk uh, extensively about the numbers and quality of animals. In, <laughs> well, in actually, the I, think that, I think the Green Mountain Power Bio, yeah, they used to love to talk about our pig oddball so yeah oddball is the name of the pig oddball. Oddball <laughs> i'm getting so oddball, much fodder here for sun run trivia <laughs> <laughs> well oddball has since passed away but she, oh. she lived a nice long life till she was 12 and then she was followed by little kim um so yes no we've had we've had lots of uh we have lots of barn animals. Amazing. I love it. You know, one of the things uh, with, and this with, with this will sort of migrate into your professional life. I do have a question here around uh, that transition. I never thought I'd be in business. I always thought I was going to be a musician. I thought I was mm-hmm. destined for Hollywood or Nashville. And I learned kind of in my late twenties, early thirties, and certainly now as a podcaster, some of the, the things early in my life that I am very grateful for that weren't obvious to me as habits or trained skills. A lot of folks attribute the arts broadly to kind of a laissez-faire attitude. A lot of folks would think, oh, folks choose this artistic lifestyle because they can't handle the rigor of the real world, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it's and it's uh, memorialized often in Hollywood as such. But the fact is that it requires a ton of discipline and rigor to be world-class at anything, including art. How did the rigor and training of the high school experience, especially the one that you had, which is quite a bit different mm-hmm. from arts experience, set you up for success later in life? It set me up more... Yes, I agree with you. First of all, I agree with you. It takes incredible discipline. And in fact, one of the things about going to a school like that is you're surrounded by these people that are so passionate, so driven, so talented, and they have such amazing discipline around their art. Um, So yes, you're right. I really was surrounded by that. And I saw that in my father's life every day. I mean, he was incredibly disciplined and passionate around his art and was willing to, I think that's also where I learned a lot about vulnerability because it also is about, it's, it's sort of the ultimate in vulnerability, in, in putting yourself out there, putting yourself on display, you know, really day after day after day. And so seeing my father, I would say in particular, do that was very, you know, in some ingrained way became a very inspirational you know, situation to have grown up around seeing that every day. So yes, I saw a lot of that. I think, you know, it's funny though, if I tie back to like the opportunities I've then had in life that have been put in front of me to make a difference in the world of, of business, I would say actually the connection back to that up, upbringing more ties to sort of the permission I felt I always had to be myself because candidly, there was, I was an outlier. Like I wasn't, I was an outlier from like that very first situation I found myself in right up to sort of every situation since then. And so from an academic perspective, from an orientation perspective, from, you know, in, in the world of energy, from a gender perspective. So, you know, honestly, I feel like being an outlier, it got me comfortable with being an outlier and it, Mm -hmm. it, and it actually became one of my superpowers that I didn't even realize was a superpower because I knew I wasn't going to fit in. So I didn't have to worry about trying to fit in. (laughs) So I could just, in essence, lean into that, my authentic, vulnerable self in whatever situation I found myself in and speak my truth. Do you have an example, maybe from your early career, you had uh, a tremendous sort of 
growth curve at one of your early roles, you, you feel free to talk about the specific companies you worked for before Green Mountain Power, but any example where that was made clear to you, oh, this is an opportunity where I'm just going to be my authentic self. Because I feel, I feel like a lot of folks can hear that be said, but they don't really understand what it means from a leadership perspective. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it did sort of start with my very first, you know, my very first work situation was at the reserve fund in New York city, which was America's first money market fund founded by two incredibly talented and wild entrepreneurs, Harry Brown and Bruce Bent. Um, They, they basically, uh, you know, came up with the whole money market concept. Like nobody had heard of the word money market or money market fund at the time. And so I took the job because I didn't have a better idea of what to do with myself. Honestly, I became a technical writer in their, like in their IT department (laughs) because I was a good writer and I was good at, at boiling things down, you know, simplistically, you know, and, and really what happened there is I ended up in the seven and a half years I was there, ultimately the associate director of operations for a fund that we grew from 200 million to three and a half billion. So I was in a, really significant leadership position at a at a young age with no formal training whatsoever and you know back to back to what we were talking about i think you know that that actually in hindsight because again hindsight's always 2020 i don't know about That's other right. people, but it's not like i'm like looking at how <laughs> for us normal people together. right yeah <laughs> In the moment, you're just kind of doing the next right thing, you know, Um, you know, but in hindsight, I can see so much how, you know, again, my love of people, my love of like trying to like fix things, bring things together, you know, really was so much what catapulted what was the Mm -hmm. what was the driver of the success that I was able to have there. And in fact, that, you know, one of the founders said, you know, I don't know how to describe it. You're just kind of like a Pied Piper is what he said. <laughs> so uh-huh. I think, and, and really for me, it was, it was that, you know, love of people. And like you said, the, the, I, I think leadership at its core is alchemy. I mean, it's yeah. just alchemy. It's taking all these different, you know, raw materials that we all bring to the table, whether it's our Myers-Briggs type or our Enneagram or our disc or our background or our, formal training or lack of formal training. It's, it's the magic that happens when we figure a way to bring it all together and mm-hmm. together create a chemistry an output that none of us could do on our own. Like that is, Oh, it just gives me chills even talking about it. I just, I love that magic. That's yeah. a huge part of what drives me as much as the mission of what we're trying to accomplish is seeing that amazing alchemy. That's amazing. Give me chills as well. Thank you. The alchemy and magic of your career is fabled candidly. And you had an opportunity. uh, I didn't know this until I started looking more seriously into what is it that I really want to talk to Mary about. That you were at Green Mountain, not from 2008 to 2019 as CEO, but from 1998, a full 10 years. Uh, I had not realized that you were there all while it was public and when it was taken private. Everyone sort of knows the story that you famously rejected taking the CEO role for three years. I I candidly didn't know the story of kind of how that came about. And now it's a little more clear to me looking at the backstory. I would like to allow for for those unfamiliar with your work, uh, which for many in our industry is sort of seminal, uh, is sort of what created Mary Powell. We now know more of the backstory that really created Mary Powell. Thank you. Could you guide us through some of the 
changes that you were involved in both leading up to being CEO at Green Mountain Power and then that you introduced as the CEO that for you represent kind of the core work, 20, 20 year body of work. Now, I know that's a big opportunity, mm-hmm. um, but I, I feel like you've done this a few times. So I'll let you take a crack at that one. Sure, sure. So, yes, I can't even believe it's so funny, too, because honestly, when I finally so it was I said no three times to join Green Mountain Power. I didn't oh, really? say no to the CEO. Role. No, oh, I said no in 1998 three times to joining Green Mountain Power because I really thought like as this whatever art kid who like left New York to, yeah. you know, make it in Vermont, you know, I just, I, I literally couldn't see myself working for utility. Like, honestly, yeah. I said no three times because I just thought, oh, like they're really nice people, but it's a super stuffy, boring culture. Yeah, what like, a step backwards. Like, oh, exactly. And I remember saying to the CEO when I turned it down one time, I said, I can't even believe he still talked to me after this. I mean, I said it with love, but I was just like, oh, like I just can't join a company where I know we're going to be having meetings about memos. Like, I'm oh, like yeah. I can't. I can't do it. And he's so funny. He promised me I would never be in a meeting about, a, you know, an email or a memo. And, I, and right. I'll and i never forget, like three weeks after I started, I said to him, see, it's happening. This meeting is about an email. Like, I won't do it. So anyway, it's just, it's so funny. So anyway, I obviously did. I did say yes. And I, when I went there, I literally, I thought, oh, I'll be there a year tops. Like, wow. you know, year or two tops you know, it just became, you know, the magical mystery tour. I mean, it just mm-hmm. ended up becoming this amazing opportunity on so many levels. And so first and foremost, you know, I guess selfishly, I got to really transform it. You know, yes, mm-hmm. we were publicly held. I became the chief operating officer within two years of joining the company and ultimately got to lead a complete and absolute transformation of, of Green Mountain Power from a cultural perspective, you know, so we, you know, we transformed the size of our organization. We transformed the space of our organization. We transformed how we behaved. We transformed from a classic utility that loved to talk about meters and poles and wires to a customer obsessed, innovative, you know, forward leaning organization that really strove to be fast, fun, and effective, not just for our customers, but for the people that worked at the company. So it was really a, it was such a fun, I mean, it didn't feel fun every minute. I will tell you there mm. were like, especially initially was really, really hard, painful stuff of organizational change. But then it just, it, you know, as it got really fun to see what started to happen once people got unleashed, like they got mm. unleashed to, you know, again, really not just also, I think, be their authentic selves, but to really lead in a way towards with with freedom and accountability that really helped us deliver on our customer obsession. So, yeah. So as COO, as I like to say it, I got to really pretty much reshape the organization in terms of how we were operationally, we, we, you know, adopted really aggressive environmental goals, but it really wasn't until I became CEO that I was really able to work with this amazing team to completely transform our orientation towards our energy future. Um, Mm. And that's where we got to put, like, it could never have happened without the cultural foundation of where we started, which was how to become fast, fun, effective, a very, 
lean, again, customer obsessed culture Mm -hmm. that then very naturally served us well when we launched a super ambitious energy vision to provide, you know, a lot more local renewable energy to Vermonters. We actually, way back in, in 2007, 2008, as I was becoming CEO, we launched an adder for customers to go solar. So we paid customers to go solar. We filed a tariff with our regulators to do that. We built Vermont's largest wind farm. We made Rutland, Vermont, the solar generation capital of New England. We transformed the portfolio from a renewability perspective, as well as, you know, now it's 100% carbon free and headed to be 100% renewable by 2025. So we did all of that while also lowering bills, while you know, really, you know, delivering, you know, low carbon, cost effective, incredibly reliable power to Vermonters. And so as a part of that, we also were the first utility in the country to provide storage. So we were we were the first partner of Tesla with their Powerwall uh-huh. technology. So we also back in 2015 came up with, um, you know, the virtual power plant approach, utilizing these distributed assets to make the grid yeah. more affordable and lower carbon for all that we serve. So it was such an incredible wild ride. And back to like our, you know, where we started on sort of talking about the importance of love. I'll never forget when I first got my like first big interview about like, oh my gosh, you're so innovative and you were listed as one of the most creative people in business right. and the most innovative. Editor. Like, and I'll never forget, they're like, well, where does all this innovation come from? Mm-hmm. And I literally hadn't really thought like, I was just like, love, like, I, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe for other people, it comes from a different place. I'm sure it does. But from for me, that's, you know, it comes from, you know, love of the planet, love of the people I'm working yeah. with, like, and then the alchemy that happens when you bring mission and love together, you know, and, and you know, and a team-based approach to results, like, that's when the magic happens. Hey, you know, it's becoming commonplace to hear that energy storage is the key to deploying renewables at scale. But if you've tried to put storage on a commercial solar project ever, then you realize it's easier said than done until now. Look, I've seen many energy storage solutions for commercial buildings as a solar project developer in my 15 years in the industry, but Yada Energy's storage product just scratches that developer itch of fit, function, and ease to install. Yada's PV-coupled ecosystem of solar plus storage solutions integrates seamlessly right behind the solar panel. In fact, it elegantly replaces the need for a ballast as it nests right into the racking on a flat roof install. Even better, Yada's integrated storage technology can enable up to 60% more solar to be employed on commercial buildings. With commercial buildings consuming 35% of electricity, that means that Yada is finally helping business owners and solar installers alike make a serious dent in the commercial sector's massive carbon emissions. Yada Energy is poised to meet the growing demands of electrification by maximizing solar plus storage without taking up additional valuable commercial real estate for your customers. To find out how Yada Energy can bring storage to your CNI rooftop project, visit mysuncast.com forward slash Yada. That's Y-O-T-T-A. Yada Energy, an elegant and revolutionary approach to solar plus storage. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and you've probably, as a result, 
heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Hexsolve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless, pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. I hear in the way that you led Green Mountain, a lot of the things that I see and hear in, uh, you know, in the way you present yourself publicly now as a leader at, at Sunrun, one of the things that has for a long time been important for most of us in the solar industry, most of us in sort of climate change, is the idea of being a, a B corporation without needing to go necessarily into all the details of B corporation. Many listeners are going to know what it is, but you, in fact, were the first B Corp utility in the in the world, I believe. Why was that important? You had so many other things, and and to layer on this sort of obligation that a B Corp uh, applies or, or sort of implies, why was that important to the mission that you were on? Well, you know, what I like to say about that at Green Mountain, I mean, what was so cool is we became a B Corp way before we became a B Corp. I mean, uh, by the time we actually talked to our board about like, hey, would you like to actually get this certification? We already scored decently as a B Corp. You know, and again, I, I talk a lot about culture strategy, you know, and so for me, like the cultural foundation is probably the most important foundation of any company. It's, it's, you know, what are the cultural attributes you're driving towards? And again, love of people, love of planet, love, you know, again, very strong environmental focus. So yeah, we really just sort of naturally became one as a, as a company that was obsessed with, you know, you know, energy justice with like, right. So by the time we actually went through the process, it was not to say it wasn't a lot of work. It was, uh, you know, some amazing team members to actually, you know, you have to really certify things and it's, it is very rigorous, you know, back to your question of why we ultimately decided, well, why not put a label on it since we already are one anyway. Um, for us, I think it felt like, such a great demonstration of how we felt like we were different, like we weren't your typical utility. And, and we wanted to, you know, put sort of put a seal on it in any way, shape or form that we could, both as a demonstration to our customers, to our stakeholders, to our regulators, right? That it's, that we, you know, we are, we are an outlier. <laughs> <laughs> and we're a proud outlier in the space that we're in because, you know, the planet's on fire. We need to move a lot faster. Um, and so, again, anything we could that sort of put a put a seal on it, we wanted to do. Well, that makes a ton of sense to me, Mary. And I appreciate you giving the, the perspective on it. 
uh, you've mentioned a number of times of being sort of this feeling of being an outsider and an outlier. Even it's not lost on anyone who looks at broadly the energy sector and, and even the renewable sector that you have been a woman in a male dominated industry. A lot of folks might at first look at that as a weakness, as though the cards are stacked against you. The deck is stacked. Um, I, however, consider it to be a strength for a lot of the reasons that you've mentioned earlier. And I just want to ask you, do you feel like it helped being a woman in a male dominated industry, either by giving you the ability to act as though you're not sure how to, how to do this, like a potential naivety, even though you came from a position of very strong fundamentals um, or what other elements of that might you add or, or unpack for us um, regarding the sort of that, I, I, I want to call it the gender dynamic, but it's just the reality that we face where we want to see more uh, female leaders. We actually have lots of statistics that show that female leadership leads to uh, greater returns in Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And uh, and Sunrun is an example of that. Yeah, wonderful. So I would say, yes. I mean, we need more diversity of all types. I mean, that's, you know, back to the magic of teams, you know, the, the more differences you have, the more diversity you have, the more representation you have of those you're serving, the stronger you will be, you know, uh, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, you know, back to sort of how I felt in, you know, I mean, again, I would say for me, the overarching thing was more that, you know, not just was I like one of like, I think three women CEOs when I became Mm -hmm. uh, you know, an investor-owned utility CEO. Um, but, it, you know, I, I definitely was the only CEO, I think, in the country that wasn't an engineer or a lawyer. So it wasn't mm -hmm. actually just that I was of a different gender. It was that I didn't have any of the academic accoutrement that, you know, that you would, mm -hmm. that you would see. So, you know, again, I think the best way to describe it is, you know, I was very comfortable feeling alone, you know, yeah. and, and it's funny because I, I took this, you know, again, I've taken a lot, like I, I encourage a lot of people just take as many personality type things as you can, because it gives yeah. you so much of a deeper understanding of not just yourself, but more important, your impact on others. And, you know, this one I took, I, I would say a couple of years ago, she just said, did you realize how off the charts you are? in independence and all of a sudden it made so much sense because she said that's that's one of the reasons why you're so comfortable in this sort of the expression of lo it's lonely at the top or it's lonely when you're you know i would go to these utility conferences and yeah it was it was odd i mean literally like no one would talk to me at the break <laughs> i felt like wow. i had to like insert myself awkwardly in these conversations and then i think to myself you know what I don't really want to be talking to you either. Anyway. Oh, wow. So I'd go for a jog or something, you know, like I don't so need I just, you. I love this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm. Like the, the folks I've always felt like that I need are the folks I'm working with every day. Like those are the ones I, I adore and I need, and I, you know, I, I build really deep connections with, but yeah. So I feel like it really just, again, I, nothing I was going to do was going to make me an insider. Like I wasn't going to look like one. I wasn't going to have the pedigree of one. So just be the outlier that you are. Like that's for me, that's, and, and, and again, always knowing what your purpose is and your North star, like always working hard at, 
having my goals and aspirations be as divorced as they can be from my own pride and ego. And that's, as we all know, as human beings, that's way easier said than done. (laughs) So it does not by any stretch of the imagination mean that I'm saying I'm devoid of pride and ego, but I've worked really hard at, again, being, being an outlier in some ways, I think made that easier because I wasn't, I I don't know, I wasn't going to get that kind of natural adoration that comes when you come from certain schools with certain backgrounds with, right. So again, it all for me just tied back to allowing me to just feel like, Hey, I'm doing like what I think is the next best thing for the planet, for the people I serve. And you know, and I won't worry about how you judge me based on it because I'm driven by that thing. I'm not driven by your opinion of me. And, and I feel like it really, and, and it even allowed me at some of the most challenging times, you know, doing some of these, some of this work, cause it's not easy. I mean, anybody who's built a wind farm knows it's not for the faint of heart, you know, and you get attacked. And it really always helped me because I literally was able to say to myself, It's not about whether I keep my job. I don't keep my job. It's not about me. Like it's about what we're trying to accomplish together. So that would be what I would keep centering myself back to. And it's, and it's, you know, it's what I do. At Green Mountain Power, uh, I heard you say that the North Star for Green Mountain Power that effectively guided the cultural transformation of that utility was this idea of transforming into an organization that was the most cost-effective and most environmentally sustainable. You achieved that in in miraculous, perhaps, ways, uh, as you cited, being the first to introduce uh, customer-cited storage as a virtual power plant, aggregating those assets. Um, the the numerous accolades that you uh, that you listed for us earlier, you left that role with no announced decision for the future and. Uh, many of us wondered. I, in fact, was like, will I ever get a chance to interview Mary? Oh, my God, she's <laughs> retired. My chance is gone. Um, and you reemerged about a year and uh, and some days ago as the uh, as the heir to the throne, so to speak, for our friend Lynn Jurek at Sunrun, um, effectively coming out of retirement to do so with with that idea of North Star. And knowing that Lynn and uh, and team, obviously she was definitely not alone. Uh, Ed Finster and many others helped build a fantastic organization that you now mm-hmm. shepherd. What is your North Star at Sunrun and how does it tie back to that work you did at Green Mountain? Oh my goodness. Yes. It's just amazing. So I guess the only correction I have to say to you is I never said I was retired. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Fair enough. Yeah. I used yep. to say to people, how could I ever, like, I'm good at knowing, like, I, I, I knew it was like time to wrap it up there. And I had an amazing woman, Mary McClure, um, who now is running Green Mountain Power uh, to, to hand the, hand the baton to. So as, yeah. and as a, you know, I got involved with the SPAC world and some other things, but, you know, back to Sunrun. So I, I mean, I have been an admirer of Lynn and Ed and Sunrun since at least I would say they were on my radar starting probably around 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, it's so cool when you think of the parallels, like mm-hmm. at the same time we were creating the first virtual power plant. Guess what? Lynn and the team were creating the first, you know, power plant, virtual power plant, right, like coming out from the play, dispute. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So 
you know, there's just been so, and then of course I was asked to join the board of Sanlan um, in 2017. So, you know, then I got more intimately involved, but I have always seen, I mean, a found a founding principle of what we were trying to do at Green Mountain Power in democratizing energy was around leveraging, you know, mm-hmm. a distributed you know, a distributed energy environment, like creating a shared energy economy where yeah. we were not, where we were accelerating adoption of these distributed devices. And then we yeah. were leveraging them as a way to, again, you know, orchestrate a more affordable, effective grid for all. So for me, when, you know, Lynn wanted to make her transition and the, the conversation started, it was it was the only obvious. I had had a bunch of things come at me in that period of time, a bunch of things, some big utility roles, yeah. transmission operator type roles, you know. And I, I had some conversations, but I was always like, oh, I don't know. I, I, I also I'm not one to repeat, so I felt like I had already done that, and I didn't, you know. Um, and you know, and and then I had some other startup kind of things come at me, and this was the 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 only one that like you know that famous line of from the mm. movie Jerry Maguire you had me at hello like mm. like she yep. she had me at hello really because I'm so passionate about this company and not just what the company's done but actually in many ways what we've just begun mm-hmm. I mean we've yeah. just begun I mean yes we're the nation's leader in solar and storage um but you know we're serving collectively as an industry about three percent of you know, a market that has about mm-hmm. 78 million addressable homes. And not just that, but it's not, you know, someone has always seen a future where our role for society in creating a planet run by the sun is also about really accelerating dramatically whole home electrification and the electrification of transportation. And you know, one of the most exciting, you know, partnerships that I've gotten to talk about since I've been in the role is our partnership with Ford, which I'm sure you're very aware of with the F-150 Lightning and really partnering with them and bringing that technology to 50 states, as well as provide, you know, solar in the states that we operate in. So we're really excited and I'm, I'm so excited about the future, about the people I get to work with. And again, you know, the thing I love the most probably so far, no surprise to you, is the alchemy of the mm-hmm. like of this great group of people that I'm getting to work with and how together we can really accelerate progress. Yeah. You were famously voted uh you moved fast and you favored kind of this flat organization at GMP, which is in my view almost like a microcosm of what you're experiencing now at Sunrun mm-hmm. and for me a natural evolution. Uh, you were recognized as Fast Company's Fast 50 in 2008 for cultural revolution effectively that you created in this utility. And now at Sunrun, you're back in the public eye. Uh, you're navigating an environment where there are uh, more than, I think for the last, last count, 40 offices. How do you think about uh, implementing, adopting that cultural philosophy from your past roles into Sunrun and maybe touch a bit on even the idea that you in, instituted in Vermont of this idea of, uh, I think it was referred to as value stacking. Well, I talked about stacking benefits. I stacking talked about benefits. like anywhere we're touching anything, like let's stack benefits. And that is, that is so much what we're doing at Sunrun, right? Yeah. It is so much about how do we become that beloved, trusted partner 
of customers all across America so that we really are their partner in their their electrification journey, whether that's transportation, whether that's more electrification in the home. So yes, and that is ultimately stacking benefits. It's about yep. how do you how do you serve more than one you know, master when you come up with a solution. So how is it not just solving to one problem, but how can you solve and help accelerate solutions to multiple problems? So yes, I feel like it's all very applicable. And, um, you know, Sunrun, yes, we have 40 branches. And, you know, again, probably no surprise to you, I'm a very much a boots on the ground leader. So I've been out and, the, out and about, um, you know, in different states and different branches, meeting with warehouse folks, meeting with installation yep. crews, sales your folks. T- your Twitter feed is a, is a nice little map of how you're <laughs> traveling from office to office. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and lots more places to go and lots of connections, lots of virtual connections, you know, all across the company. And so really it's, you know, the North Star is so clear. It really is about becoming that beloved, trusted partner, about being customer obsessed, about creating a planet run by the sun that helps customers then meet their other, you know, whole home electrification and transportation needs. So, you know, so I wouldn't be surprised years from now if we have customers that don't even realize actually that we started with solar only um, mm, yeah. because they know us as a cust- as a company to solve so many of their, their electrification opportunities and challenges. I want to touch on that. And there's so much more I want to ask. So I'm going to try to get three questions in here. What are the deeper kind of community level aspirations that you see companies like Sunrun can solve with solar plus storage plus in-home energy services uh, that you offer to consumers, your customers today that essentially create what I, I view as the utility of the future? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, what we're providing is something that utilities just aren't built to provide, mm-hmm. which is comfort and resilience, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's ultimately, you know, what we're delivering, you know, is is really precious. Um, you know, and a lot of a lot of customers, I think once upon a time thought of it simply as, oh, is it something I'm going to save money with or not? Right. right. But as technology mm-hmm. has evolved and, you know, and in many homes today, we're providing not just solar, not just storage, not just soon this, you know, Ford uh, bi-directional charger. Um, but, you know, in some homes we are already deploying smart panels, right? So mm-hmm. that yep. we give customers way better insights and control over the circuits in their home and insights into how truly to utilize energy to power their homes, their cars, um, hopefully by the sun. Hopefully they have a home that it can be done by the sun. But, you know, how they can do that all in a way that really ultimately enhances their, their own sense of security, comfort, and independence in their own home, you know, mm-hmm. and particularly when you, you know, when you operate in California, where, you know, again, let's not forget, you know, not just our utility rates going up at exponential rates. I think the largest utility just filed for an 18% rate increase. Right. That creates a lot of insecurity for people, not yeah. knowing what's going to be happening with the cost of their energy. But then you layer on top of that because of the fire risk, you have utilities routinely shutting power off in areas where they need to shut down the lines to reduce the fire risk. Um, So you really have, you know, I was in the LA area at 
at uh, Thanksgiving time. And, you know, I think it was a total of 100,000 customers didn't have power for two and a half days, you know. And so that shakes people to their core. So what we're also in the business of is we're in the business of providing a sense of security, a sense of safety in your own home that you can generate your own power. You can store your own power. You can utilize it for your vehicle. You can utilize it, you know, to keep your home cool or warm, you know, and to keep your, your family feeling secure. I'm so glad that you tied exactly to the thing that is on everyone's mind right now. We are as an industry embroiled in what many have called, called a battle, you know, the solar tax, not just in California, in many other states that are watching California, including Florida. They're currently the battlegrounds du jour for utilities and rooftop solar. You are, by any standard, the most visible leader that has been on both sides of this aisle. What are both sides missing to reach a shared perspective or point of view? And I would add to that, if you had them both in a room at the same time, what would you say to accelerate the discussion towards a fair and balanced outcome? Well, you know, first and foremost, yeah, I'm a big believer in like radical collaboration. Like that's the solution. Like that we don't have time for this classic nonsense. <laughs> like literally we don't have time for this classic, you know, nonsense going back and forth. And I think, you know, what I would yeah. say, the core thing I would say is we have to look together, like all of the innovation we did at Green Mountain and all of the innovation that has come out of Sunrun and it is coming out of Sunrun is coming from looking forward, like yeah. looking forward and saying, how can we, like, how can we fill in the blank? How can we X, right? How can we solve to climate change faster? How can we, you know, get storage deployed faster? How can we bring new technologies to improve lives, right? And fundamentally, one of the dysfunctions of the utility space, and I say this, it's not just the utilities, it's the entire ecosystem around them, is it's all about parsing and looking at information, like historical information. Like mm -hmm. I think the biggest mistake is, it's, it's not, I would bring everybody together in a room, and I would say like, how together do we create the future that we know will be better for the planet, for the people that we serve. Like that's that should be the North Star. And then how do we get to yes? Like utilities because of their ecosystem are wired for no. They're wired to see the problems in everything instead of the opportunities. Like that is, they are not like incented, rewarded in any cultural way for innovation, for thinking ahead, for looking ahead, right. for, for starting with how do I get to yes? Versus how do I get to know? So that, like when people say to me, like, well, how did you do it? Or other utilities do about like what we did at Green Mountain? I was like, because honestly, we just kept saying to ourselves, how can we get to yes? Like, what would that, what, what could it look like to get to yes? And that's why we, we were first at like figuring out how to use devices, you know, a virtual power plant, right? Because that was how we could get to yes to increase the value of distributed assets was to then figure out a way to leverage them to drive down the cost, to flatten and crush the peak, as we used to like to say, was our goal. So it's really, how do we get to yes? How do we look to the future? How do we make the problem of climate change and cost and resilience for the people we serve, you know, more important than our, our fear-based thinking of, you know, what happened last year or the year before? 
Mary Powell is the Chief Executive Officer of Sunrun, and it has been my true pleasure and honor to host you for the last hour. Thank you. Oh, thank you. So nice to connect with you. Ooh, well, one hour just would never be enough to get all the good out of a conversation with that wise woman. Mary, I truly appreciate your candor and your time here with us today on Suncast. What a powerful way to kick off Women's History Month, eh? Mary did not disappoint. And I appreciate you too, Solar Warrior. You know, Mary and I are speaking into a void without you here to join us. Of course, I'm sure you thought of a dozen questions you'd have asked along the way that slipped my mind. Should I see if Mary will join me for round two? What else should I ask? Should we do this as a live interview, perhaps an AMA next time? Mary and I would love it if you'd hop over to LinkedIn and leave us a comment on the post that I've shared for this episode, or perhaps even create one of your own. Just don't forget to tag Mary and myself and tag the rest of our hashtag solar warriors so they can also chime into the discussion. As I mentioned in the episode, I found a treasure trove of additional things that I think you'll find interesting, like a deeper dive into the Enneagram Type 3 personality, for example. If you're eager to keep learning, well, then you, my fellow Philomath, can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion, along with the social media links, book recommendations, and more, over on the blog at mysuncast.com. I hope you'll also take the time to subscribe to the show, as that's how you know the minute next week's Amazing Female Leader debuts on Suncast. And if you did love what you heard today, well, the kindest thing that you could do is to leave us a review. And it's never been easier. Just go to www.ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast. Thanks again to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also where you can learn how to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions just like yourself twice a week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Happy Women's History Month. And thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.